A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Sport Pods. Hi, welcome to a special edition of Michael Calvin's Football People. I'm joined by Miguel Delaney of The Independent, Adrian Clark, the tactical analyst, and by David Priest, the coach and columnist. We'll be conducting an end-of-year review guided by nine previous interviewees who give us a taste of how the season has gone and how it's likely to shake down. As ludicrous as it seems, just two days after the greatest World Cup final, the season resumes with the League Cup, a competition with all the vivacity of Monty Python's dead parrot. So David, are we in danger of overload or are you happy to return to the rituals of club football? I think football just moves on really quickly, doesn't it? And the way the football is these days, there's there's an overload of football. The players themselves rarely have a break during the summer. It's become like cricket, isn't it? You know, it's just an all year round game now. It's a pity we won't be able to to rest a little bit and just think of the the wonder of the World Cup and the World Cup final and and talk about that for a little bit longer. But like you said, it's it's just going to move on really quickly, and teams have got to get back to thinking about the the league and the and the cup again. Mm. Now, you're just about to get on the plane back from Qatar, Migs. We'll discuss other aspects of the tournament later. But from a football point of view, how will the familiar intensity of the Premier League compare to what you've been through in the last month or so? I suppose the main difference that this World Cup reminded us of and kind of characterised it, despite everything around it and all the controversy Qatar's hosts, is that, I mean, I, I don't think the quality was high as the Premier League of Champions League. I don't think international can be because of just its very nature. But that's compensated for by, I mean, the meaning of it, which pushes players and teams to levels and depths of kind of sporting spirit, of human spirit, that you just don't see in virtually anything else in football, maybe sport. Like, I mean, the way some of the games went when teams were on the brink of going out, the last few minutes of the game, I mean, you could write a thousand words alone in the last minute of the final with that Martinez save and then the Martinez miss at the other end. And that's one thing that will always differentiate the World Cup. And that's what makes also the four-year cycle, given there's been so much discussion about that, so special. Because if it was every two years, it just wouldn't mean the same thing. And that, that, for me, that's what stands out as regards the difference. Also, I mean, and because this sh- shouldn't be overlooked, I mean, it's something we've discussed in the podcast so much that football is currently going through a period in history where there's never been so, I mean, it reflects society really, but there's never been so much inequality in terms of resources. And I, mean, I think half of Europe's, or over half of European football's economy, should I say, sorry, is um, concentrated in seven cities. And what that's done is these kind of wealthy, Western European countries are basically industrialised talent production. So if France won like that, that would have been f- won last night, 
it would have been four World Cups in a row won by a wealthy Western European nation. Argentina have broken it up. I think that's healthy for the sport, even obviously it should be, it, the, the ideas should be expanded more. And also even the fact that this, well, I didn't think this was a great Argentina team. Obviously it has what we can now call the greatest player of all time, amplifying everything, bring them together. But um, it was a little bit of a victory for another way of doing things. And that's often no harm. Yeah, as I said, we'll talk more about Qatar later. Now, I don't need to remind you, Adrian, that Arsenal are five points clear at the top of the Premier League before the restart. They're home to West Ham on Boxing Day. I suppose there's just one question. Can they sustain the challenge? (laughs) It won't be easy, that is for sure, because Manchester City have been there and done it over and over again. And you know that they're only going to get stronger the longer the season goes on. The question is, can Arsenal sustain their form? Their form is incredible. Look at the results. one twelve, drawn one, lost one. There's not many teams that can can go out there and and repeat that again. So so I think there are bumps in the road that lie ahead for sure. But it's how Arsenal respond to those setbacks when they come. That will be the deciding factor, in my opinion, because... That was what caught them out last season. Whenever they had a disappointment, whenever there was a setback, a bad result, a bad half, it fell away. Now, earlier on this season, they showed great resilience when things went a little bit awry and they turned things around in games. Can they maintain that? That That is a huge, huge factor in the title race. And obviously, how are they going to cope without Gabriel Jesus? I mean, he's been phenomenal. I know he's only scored five goals. But he's. I've watched every game and he has been outstanding. Just the aggression, the hostility, the energy, everything that he does in a game just elevates those around him. And without him, it would be fascinating to see how the team copes. He set the tone for those fast starts. He set the tone for those victories. Now it's up to the others, Eddie Nketiah and the likes of Saka and Martinelli, Erdegaard and co to... Um, to all step up and and compensate for his absence. Well, dealing with pressure is, you know, a key element of any managerial job description. Why don't we hear Mikel Arteta on that pressure from when we spoke earlier in the year? With pressure, Mike Tyson, the boxer, talked about fear as his fire. Now, that fire can warm you or it can burn you. Is pressure your version of that fire, that you have to embrace pressure because it's there anyway? I always had it, and, um, and it's very different when you are a player and when you are a manager. Probably the biggest fear as a player it was to get badly injured. You know, that's the, mm. the lowest point as a player, that not being able to, to fulfill your potential because you don't have the right conditions to do that because physically you cannot do it. As a manager, probably is the fear of, of getting sacked. And I made a very conscious decision the day that I made that decision to be a head coach. He said, it would happen today, tomorrow, in a month's time, in 10 years' time. I don't know when it would happen. That cannot drive my emotion. And this cannot be the reason why I do certain things or not. For me, the fear now as a manager is not the fear it is to let people down. 
not to give my best, not to be able to transmit what I want to do in the most efficient way to help those players and to have the people who support us connected and understanding what we are about. That's the fear. I cannot fail there. I can fail making the wrong tactics and losing a game and then it's someone's decision to decide what is best for the football club. But I cannot get people not to understand, not to follow what we're about. What struck me there was the integrity of Arteta's approach. It's not been easy building a team in his image, but I think he's done so. What do you think, if you're an Arsenal fan, David, what characteristics of that team would offer you hope? I don't know if it's characteristic, but I think all the way through the process since he took over, there's been a methodology there. There's been a way of playing and... and in impressing his personality on the team as well. And I think that, you know, going back a couple of seasons, I think there was a game at, at Old Trafford between United and Arsenal. United possibly won. But I think that, uh, Tim Cahill was doing the punditry and, and it, he got a lot of stick for saying that, you know, despite the defeat, that Arteta's methodology would see him through more so than Solskjaer. And, and he, was, he was laughed at basically by a lot of people because Arsenal weren't in a good place at that time. But he's, he's been proved right. Narteta has been proved right. You know, he's been in a precarious position quite a few times uh, over the course of his time there. And I think that the fact that he's he's stuck to what he knows and and he, he talks about a, a fear of failure or a, a, a kind of fear that drives both players and, and managers of the fear of injury and the, and the fear of, of getting the sack as a manager. I think that's probably what he's done that's different from other managers you can see when a manager is is fearful of the sack in the the decisions they make the way that they are and it's a huge huge mistake to take on that sort of to take on that fear and sometimes it's it's not a conscious decision obviously you know it's you're affected by the environment around you but that's the one thing you know that he take into it that he's he, he stuck to what he believes in and it's come good for him mm. what makes the second half of the season so intriguing is that there's an element of the apprentice challenging the master. Here's Arteta on his relationship with Pep Guardiola. Pep famously warned you about the loneliness of your job. Mm. Was that warning well-founded? And how do you deal with that isolation? Because leaders in any walk of life do always talk about that, the loneliness or the isolation of leadership, knowing that the decisions you make will be questioned. The greatest thing with Pepe was that I was able to see and feel what the role meant working in another office and looking through the window or trying to read what he was feeling, but he gave me the opportunity to get inside the mind and really verbalize how he was feeling, fears that he had things that they were fulfilling in the most, the reason why he was doing it, the periods that he had difficulties or he had good moments, he really shared deeply his emotions with me. And, and that was, for me, an incredible lesson. I knew, obviously, before we worked together, but uh, he did it in a way that transformed my way of understanding the profession and the reason why he was sitting there every day with, with such a pride and, and such a passion as well. Well, Migs, I thought that was a really interesting insight into Guardiola's humanity and also his competitive mentality 
What do you think his likely response to the threat represented by Arsenal will be? Well, I mean, I expect Guardiola to almost double down on the intensity. I mean, also, as this entire exchange illustrates, it adds something to it that there is this relationship between the two men. But, I mean, it, it, it did strike me. Obviously, they hit it off. They've got a, they've got a very good friendship themselves. But it points to one of the most important things in, in coaching as well, which is, I mean, obviously, Guardiola is a genius. Someone who's changed the game will go down as a, as, a, as a figure who's offered a kind of tactical landmark in the history of football and continue to dominate it. But all that is only possible because of a personal charisma. And, you know, that's often illustrated in different ways through different sort of personalities, but it's still something that matters. And it does feel like now that Arteta has it too. I mean, I remember speaking to someone, and I suppose David would be able to speak to this better than anyone. Well, actually, the two lads would, sorry, David and Adrian. That, but I remember speaking to someone at one big European club who said, the, the first thing, the, the, the first most important quality of a coach is how he speaks, because if, if, he, if he's unable to get his message across, it instantly kills him. But these are two managers. Even, and if you consider Guardiola as well, given how complex some of his coaching is, and yet still, that obviously deeply sinks in for... So, so many top players. I suppose the, the one great variant in this is how players are going to be affected after the World Cup. City had a lot of players going into the final week in the quarterfinals. Obviously, as, as Adrian's already pointed to, Arsenal have lost uh, Gabriel Jesus. But it, it's kind of, it's this disruptor in a way we've never seen before. And we might even see the full effects for a few months. And that could potentially work against Guardiola's intensity in this way. Yeah, well, you mentioned that loss of Jesus, Adrian. Do you see either of the contenders going into the market in January? Obviously, one assumes there's a greater impetus for Arsenal to do so, but City have got a history of you know adding from positions of strength. I think adding from positions of strength is an important thing to do, but, but only, yeah, I mean, I don't see an urgent necessity for Manchester City. I mean, they've got Erling Haaland, probably the best centre-forward on the planet. And then you've got Julian Alvarez, one of the best young strikers at the World Cup. So they're pretty well stocked up top. And you look around their departments, that they're not doing too badly, are they? They've had issues, haven't they, in defence. But Carl Walker's back now. The other players have been nicely rested. So I could see Manchester City standing still in the transfer market. I sincerely hope that Arsenal will recruit they need to recruit. I think you look at their bench and it needs stiffening up. The, the one thing that really separates these two sides, I mean, there's, there's plenty that does, but the one thing that really leaps off the page is Manchester City's strength in reserve. They can rest and rotate, no problem, without weakening their team. Arsenal can't. Arsenal have, a, have an exceptionally strong, fast-improving first eleven, but outside of that, they don't have the same level of player. So, yeah, I, I think Arsenal should be in the market for for two or three players, if possible. Certainly a striker. Uh, I don't think you can rely solely on Eddie and Ketia over the coming weeks and months. Although Martinelli could play up front and Smith-Rowe could come in on the left. I still think a striker's needed. Mudrik, if he's available. I mean, we all know he's gagging to come. <laughs> I mean, he keeps making these noises. The Shakhtar Donetsk winger. I think... He's a player worth pursuing. If we, if Arsenal could get him now, do it, get it done. And then I do think still that, that in central midfield, Thomas Partey is so integral to this team. The drop-off 
when he's not available is, is too big at the moment. So they need a player that Arsenal can slot in for Thomas Partey if he's not available and um, and not weaken the team too much. That, those are the areas that I'm pretty sure the manager has identified too. Yeah, well, if you look at other clubs likely to go in the market, Chelsea is one. Now, this is a club that's you know, dominated by the desire to accumulate titles and trophies, uh, none more so than in the women's team, actually. When you think of... Emma Hayes has spent a decade there, and I think it's 11 or 12 trophies. One of the features of 2023 will be the Women's World Cup in Australia and New Zealand. That means the profile of the women's game has never been higher. Now, we spoke to Emma about how the Euro win in particular uh, will change the game. Do I think ever since the broadcasting deal last summer, our lives have been changing? Yes. I think ever since we've been more televised, we've been more recognised, more scrutinised. Again, I think that will just incrementally grow. And I think that will bring some humongous challenges, especially for the players on the back of this, because like you said, that sort of authentic, carefree uh, approach to what they do with now daily reporting of everything from their personal lives to their financial lives, I think will take its toll on some of them. And they might not be prepared for what the men have had to endure for such a long time. And that will come with its challenges and I do believe the prep work has been done in the background, at least for the top players. I think the trickle down of that will be that uh, the women's game are going to have to accept some of the negativity that's going to follow them with every decision they make. And that's what our roles are going to be as coaches, the guidance, the the support but guidance in the right directions when you see it slipping in another direction. Because, listen, this make no mistakes. There's make no bones about it. There will be uh, some within that that it's going to affect them massively, both positively and negatively. Yeah, I think that uh, greater scrutiny is going to have to be you know, a fact of, of a new life for women's uh, footballers. You know, as I mentioned, David, Chelsea's a club driven by achievement. You know, you only have to go into the training ground to see the photographs of um, various teams with various trophies. Graham Potter, he's already under considerable pressure. Do you think he's got two must-win games coming up, at home to Bournemouth and then away to Forest? I think he's already said that, <clears throat> you know, every game's must-win for, for Chelsea and there's one when people talk about how much time he'll have in the job you know if he doesn't get immediate success and there's a tricky time for him at the moment I always come back to the thought that I don't think he'd be there if he wasn't given some sort of guarantee that he'd be given time to put his mark on the on this team and to do that as well of course he's got to have the immediate success and the results but also he's got to be given time to to bring in the players that he wants to bring in as well but it's the, the pressures are already there on him. 
what they need to do at Chelsea, and it seems like what they're trying to do is they're trying to, to make it a premier class of Brighton. If you can do that with the, the money that's available at Chelsea and the funds that's available, then they're going to build something that's going to stand them in good stead for for the, at least the next decade. And I think that's that, that's where they should back him. And I know there's going to be pressure from fans if they don't win the next two games. There's going to be pressure from upstairs as well. But again, like I was talking about with Mikel Arteta, you know, they have to push through and they have to they have to back him and trust that, that that's what the, the, the end of the process is going to come good. Yeah, well, it has been a tricky transition. A lot of money has been spent and I'm sure a lot more money will be uh, invested in the next few weeks. Here, when he was at Brighton, Potter explained that cash alone is not necessarily decisive. Do you think a club like Brighton gets the credit it deserves for the almost for the clarity of, of its purpose, really? You know, it's very strategic. You've got a, a plan that you adhere to. And it's not, it almost goes against some of the conventional wisdom in football that, okay, just there's a problem, throw money at it. Mm. Yeah, and I would say conventional wisdom in inverted commas because it's not necessarily wisdom. It's just a, you know, you can see there's, there's clubs out there that have spent a lot of money. You know, we're talking hundreds of millions, but haven't quite got it right. So it's it can't just be about how much money you spend. I think that would be a, a quite a depressing, and I think eventually people would f- fall out of football if that was just the case. I think you always have to provide a something beyond that for it to be of any interest, for it to be. A, of anything really important. If it's just a transaction, if it's just about money, and everybody's league table is determined by that, then clearly we're not understanding football because it's again, it's about people. And you get the wrong people, you get the wrong environment. You don't appreciate how recruitment, aligning the resources with the academy, with who you're bringing in, how much that can damage your X and O's, mm. your starting 11, then you can burn through a lot of money. I think it's is, is quite clear. There's a, a lot of examples. Of course, there are examples of football clubs that run incredibly well, that spend money wisely and do it really well. But um, as I've said previously, we can't necessarily worry about the others. We have to just stick to our own idea and try and make our own idea better. We're not saying it's the right idea for everyone, but for us, it's, it's important and we try and do it as best we can. That was... Very admirable, but how relevant is it at a club like Chelsea, Migs? I'm sure he's right to point out it's about having the right people in the right environment, but that environment is a much more complicated environment with great respect to the one that he left at Brighton. Yeah, and there's no denying that Potter deserves great credit, because ultimately he has this job because he significantly overachieved at Brighton, but it's this is about, I suppose this is the kind of the thing that people have been saying as a potential or, or an area where it might take him a while to get used to the job, where I could ultimately see him fail at Chelsea. Not not that I'm saying that will happen, but I suppose th- th- this is the kind of threshold in that he goes from this this sort of situation where he's defying the economics of football to one now where he is in one of the absolute top clubs even after the sale, especially given what, when you see what Chelsea spent in the summer. And, and, but there's two sides to that as well, because really the issue about football now is to be competitive, 
you basically need a baseline of about 400 million pounds revenue every year. I mean, I, I know it sounds cold to bring it down to that, but that, that, that's a fact now. That's, the, the, these are like the, all the kind of the clubs that get to the last few rounds of the Champions League, all, all the clubs that finish in the top few positions in the Premier League, certainly. That's the sort of money they have. So it, it goes from that situation where you, ha- you, have, you, you need this minimum, but then also you're competing against sides that have that money as well. So the fine details become reduced if, if any one decision goes wrong, as we've seen with Liverpool, say, and some of the signings in the last two years, where it's been the first time where it's felt they've got anything wrong, it can suddenly have a massive disproportionate effect. And I suppose Chelsea as well are going through a bit of a process now where they are trying to build a new project. It's The, the, the new ownership came in in the summer and almost had to, without any sort of football hierarchy there. So had to try and kind of almost work on an, on an ad hoc basis. That probably leaves this team not looking as it should for this season. Maybe it won't for another season. It depends on the sort of business they do. And it does, it does put Potter in a bit of a difficult situation this year as he himself adapts to, well, I mean, again, without, without meaning to disrespect the players he had at Brighton, but we're talking about a squad of, of top professionals. That brings different requirements, different demands. And so on the whole, it's a, it's a, it's a massive adaptation period all round. Yeah, that's very true. Equally true is that Brighton are just going on in their own sweet way. It's a hugely impressive club in terms of the clarity and the effectiveness of the of the entire strategy. I went to see David Weir, the technical director, who's been reinforcing those familiar values. How does he see his role? What about your own role? technical director is the title one thing that's always struck me is that the nature of the job can be encompassed by loads of titles you know it's one club it's a sporting director and another club it's head of football how would you describe your job that's a good question i've only been doing this job for less than a year and, and there's there's a lot more for me to learn and i must be honest in terms of a lot of it's been firefighting because from the day I came into the role, there's been constant flux, constant change. We've lost managers, we've lost players, we've lost academy directors, we've lost heads of recruitment. With you know, various things have changed, and it's been an ongoing process of just dealing with change and trying to manage situations. And I think ultimately that's what the job is to try and deal with the here and now, as well as looking at the bigger picture. And I think we've tried to explain what we are as a football club. And my role is is day to day, to trust the people that are managing the departments, to have good people in position to do that, to have good people working with them who can step in and and help out with that and try and create an environment that allows people to utilize the skills that they have. So I think that's the key thing, is being approachable, which I like to think I am, but still having the experience and the, the trust to allow good people to do their jobs, whether that's on the pitch or off the pitch. I think it's important that you trust the people you employ. And I think we've got a really good staff. We've got a really good group of players. The, Roberto has been really positive in terms of the characters that he's inherited. I think Graham deserves a lot of credit for that in terms of putting together a squad that was aligned in terms of mindset and how they work. And I think Roberto's had the benefit of that. And I think that for us, as a club and me as a person is really, really important. You know, as I said uh, earlier, that strategy 
is really impressive, Dave. But are they almost too good for their own good? They had eight players at that World Cup. I worked it out on the back of a fag packet. It was just under £50 million worth of players. Well, not they're, they're worth an awful lot more now. Several of those players, notably McAllister, Casado, Mitoma, really excelled in Qatar. Can they keep them? I think when it comes to people like uh, Moises Casado, probably not, no, because he is, he is that good. And the, the types of clubs that are, that are in from now, obviously Chelsea, they know, you know, Carl McCauley and, and Graham are the ones that have scouted him. And they know how good he is, so they'll be at the front of the queue to, to bring it with Chelsea. When you're a club like Brighton, you're always going to be a victim of your own success because of the quality players that you bring in. And... Carl McCauley doesn't really get a lot of coverage because he doesn't court any any kind of uh, publicity. He's very much happy to be in the background. But he's the one that, that is as responsible as anybody other than Graham for, for Graham's success because of the his scouting models and, and, and where he, he looks to find these these diamonds and whether that will take away from you know him leaving Brighton and obviously the head of recruitment has left Brighton to go to Chelsea as well, whether that will change things. But that's the whole purpose of bringing the models into the, these clubs to make sure that when people leave, that the model is still there and that they can still bring the players in. So it's, um, yeah, it, you can easily see that it, they can handle losing those players because they'll have somebody already in line to, to replace those. They've got a great succession sort of planning for, for every position, including staff. So you'd imagine that, of course, they'll have to take the hits now and again and uh, have a period of rebuilding. But of course, the, like I said, if you're going to do well and you're going to unearth these diamonds, there's always going to be bigger clubs that are going to take and pick them off you. Mm. Yeah, I was I was very impressed by David Weir's you know, sense of, of order and serenity about it all. He wasn't phased by the challenge that was obviously going to come. Brighton play Arsenal on New Year's Eve at the Amex aid. Can they do to them what they did to Chelsea? <laughs> Oh, I hope not, <laughs> but, <laughs> but they're capable, aren't they? Brighton, they're 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 a very exciting team. They did beat Arsenal in the in the Carabao Cup shortly before the World Cup, albeit it was a weakened Arsenal side. But I was impressed with them, the way they came to Emirates Stadium and owned it. And they are very much a bogey team for the Gunners. I mean, they've beaten Arsenal as often as Arsenal have beaten them since they've come back into the Premier League. So this is a this is a very very Challenging match for for Arsenal on New Year's Eve at the Amex. Obviously, there'll be yeah. You would imagine McAllister will be back there. He'll be full of beans. The players you just mentioned all very very impressive. Most of their defence has been able to stay stay with the club during the during the break. And I think for for a new manager to deserve, even though he's been in place a while now, it's great for him to get that time on the training pitch to work with you know, half or three quarters of his squad on his tactical approach. I think it's, it's going to be huge for him. It's something that Mikel Arteta hasn't been really been afforded the time to do. Um, so, yeah, I think I think Brighton have got a chance of causing an upset in this match. But just going back to the previous point, while I do agree that, that they've got this model in place and that they're, you know, they'll have somebody else lined up for all of these players that will inevitably go, think about Southampton and and, and and what they had, they had something special going, didn't they? And in the end, I think they sold two or three too many at the same time. 
and then the production line dried up and one or two people were left from behind the scenes. It upset the equilibrium. And, and look at their squad now compared to when, you know, a few years ago when Sadio Mane was there surrounded by a number of players that are now with even bigger, you know, with huge clubs. So it's not guaranteed to last forever. It is about getting the right people in. And uh, I don't think Brighton will know yet if they've got the right replacements for Potter and his team for a year or so. Yeah, we mentioned there, and it was actually so stark that it just made me sort of go back in my seat a bit, that McAllister could be back at the Amex for that game. Migs, you've been around the Argentinian camp during the World Cup. You saw close up the emotional intensity, that tsunami of emotion that they experienced at the end of that World Cup final. How on earth can those players come down to earth quickly? Well, this is the thing. I mean, we're, <clears throat> sorry, when we were talking about the, uh, the potential effect in the World Cup before it started, or for the months in the build-up, it was all about, say, the disappointment players have. Like if someone has a Harry Kane in Euro 2020, or sorry, a Harry Maguire Euro 2020, or Roberto Baggio 94, it can have this kind of medium-term effect, takes players a while to get over, but that can work the other way as well, and that when you win it. I mean, we're talking about the ultimate high. That's going to bring a come down. Now, of course, it could go the opposite way, and players go on, um, you know, are on a plane, maybe just performing almost in a state of flow for some time, just because they're on this high. Although on that, I was just thinking and mentioning Baggio 94. Well, the winner in 94 was Romario. What happened with him in Barcelona that time? There was a few brilliant months. They had that incredible performance. Him and Stoichkov destroyed Manchester United 4-0 at Camp Nou. And then by January of that year, mid-season, he'd basically, he'd gone and kind of never really recovered his career. Now, obviously, I'm not saying that's going to happen to these players, but just it's more the point that when you win a World Cup, in, in this manner especially, it just it requires some amount of emotional investments. And, I mean, Emmy Martinez, why, like, this, this is a player who kind of felt it almost more than any other Argentine player, was crucial to winning it in the end. Not quite as crucial as Messi, obviously, but um, that save in the last minute of the game, all those penalties, the, the energy he had. And now to go from that to the kind of the everyday of the Premier League, it's, it's, it's quite a difference. Yeah, mentioning Martinez, if you were coaching him, Dave, how would you approach it? Because he's, let's say, he's distinctive. <laughs> Not just goalkeepers, but all players. You, you want them to show the personality. If that is his genuine personality, then you you want to accentuate that. And I think there's a lot of bit, a lot of talk about around the you know his antics during penalty shootouts and things like that. But at the same time, it's you, you can't argue with with his record. You know, you, you see that um, his heroics in the in the Copa America, and and he's kept that sort of form all the way through this World Cup as well. And I think it's. It, when you've got that kind of personality and you impose it on the game, you impose it on the opposition, certainly when it's in a 1v1 situation like a penalty shootout, then you've got to do everything you can to to, to put things in your favour. And yeah, he, he certainly does that. And even just the, sometimes it, it's not about what you do as well. It's just about the way that you are. And I think, you know, big personalities in in situations like that can be the deciding factor. And it, and it is for him for in a lot of occasions. Hmm. It's a unique managerial challenge, this sort of two-pronged season, Aid Everton, they're at Manchester City New Year's Eve after assuming against Wolves. 
Only one win in eight before the break. Is the pressure, do you think, growing on Frank Lampard? It has to be. Yeah, one win in eight is is not great. They had a decent start to the season, but tailed off. Obviously, on the back of last season, where it was bad for long periods, he kind of salvaged, salvaged it towards the end, didn't he? Yeah, he's he got some coaching to do, hasn't he? With the players, he's got to give this team some kind of identity. I still think they're struggling. I think, I think the only identity that I've really seen from Everton that's been effective is their traditional identity of of being aggressive and playing fast, uh, it's, yeah, hostile football. And it's got them results, particularly at Goodison Park. But but away from Goodison Park, they've really struggled to put their imprint on matches when they don't have that backing. And I don't see I don't see a team that's especially strong in in any of the units. Defensively, they you know have got good players, but they concede a lot of chances in midfield, very workmanlike, but not that much creativity. And up front, there there are big problems. So I think he's got to. He's got to work with Ashley Cole and the rest of his coaching staff and 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 find a way of playing that, that brings more out of these players. And if he can't do that, then I do I do fear that, that he won't be in this job potentially by the end of the season. Yeah, there's also an additional dimension of him being a prominent former player. When we spoke up at Finch Farm, Everton's training ground, I thought he was very, very revealing about the pressure on a former player to excel as a coach. When you look at your role, there is always a, a moment in football where people provide instant judgment on you. Now, so you had that at Chelsea. Are you judged as a prominent former player, or, or you know, you can widen it to other prominent former players who've gone into management, are you judged by different standards? Are there different emotions at play, a bit of envy maybe? Yeah, I would say that's human nature. And I think if you're talking about media, maybe ex-players or elements of the media or probably maybe a cultural thing sometimes where you've played at a high level over a period of time, then maybe it's our culture here sometimes to go, OK, you better really show me you're a good coach then. You know? <laughs> and maybe then you're a bit of a negative starting point. I think some English and British coaches maybe have experienced that and are experiencing that. And, and the difficulty with that is that you have to keep your mouth shut and your head down as much as you can and just and get on with it and do your job. Because to break that mould or to break that, you'll only do it by performance. The hard thing with that sometimes is, is perception and nobody knows your job unless they're in it and around it with you. And that, that's one of the biggest learnings for me as a manager. Because I worked in the media for a year and it was my job to sort of comment on it. Mm. And so you could easily get sucked into, uh, well, I can't understand why he picked that player over that player or why that formation over that formation. And then when you t start the job and you come to a high-pressure job and all of them are high-pressure, whether you're working in Premier League or whether you're working in Div 2, all have relative problems. You see them, you have to deal with them, and people on the outside don't. So I think it can be a bugbear, I'm guessing, of a lot of us managers because you go, it's very easy for you to comment in hindsight after a match about that decision that I had to make mm -hmm. considering lots of variables that happened in the week. So there are lots of things like that. And I think it's important you sort of stay away from getting too deep in that conversation. It's important that you just keep working in the right direction. I love coaching. I was pleased that when I started managing, I wanted to be a coach, not a manager, because I felt that's the way the game was going. I thought it was going away from a, a manager that oversees. I thought 
a situation and has coaches that do the... I, I felt like working on the pitch next to the players was the only way an ex-player can prove to those players that not only have you played the game at a good level, but you're there coaching it with them. Mm. I think to overseers and managers, it's, it's not easy with the modern player. They need to feel you next to them, improving them and helping them and just get on with that. And then I think you hope that your work can take you in the right direction. So if there are any doubters, then you prove them wrong. The World Cup will obviously shape this season. I'm intrigued, Migs, by players like Jamie Vardy, who made a conscious decision to step away from international football. Do you understand the logic of that decision? If you, oh yeah, I mean you can't but understand. Like I mean, I, having just watched a World Cup final that went to the absolute limits, and you can see what it means that in that particular moment. That's when it becomes difficult to criticise. But, of course, not, not everyone's going to get to the latter stages of a tournament or play there, even if they are in big squads. And ultimately, it's about, I suppose, it's a logical calculation in your career. And I think there's no denying it. The, 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 the proof is it tends to prolong it because just the amount of energy you're saving, not going away all the time, all the demands, giving yourself free summers, of course that will have an effect. And it's probably all the more important for Vardy now, given that the last year has felt for the first time, because he is in his mid-30s, was performing well into his 30s, especially when you, when, you, when you see that stat about him, about the amount of Premier League goals scored over the age of 30, where it, it, it looked like he was going to go on forever. But for the first time, we're, 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 almost, we're seeing that bit of a slowdown. So now it's all the more important. He conditions himself correctly. A little bit of a resurgence with Leicester before the Premier League broke. For the, for the World Cup. And this is, again, this is going to be one of the potential disruptors, one of the maybe, maybe the differences for 2023 and why this really is a Premier League season split in half because we could well have players now that, that weren't involved in the World Cup or that haven't been involved in international football in particular could suddenly have this huge release and we could be some players that are a lot fresher than a lot of their counterparts and maybe we'll see yet another Vardy resurgence. Yeah, well, when we met, he was certainly aware of the challenge of longevity and he was prepared to take that challenge on. Do you think there'll be any pangs of regret when you're watching England in Qatar? What about just giving what, it up? Yeah, that could have been me, yeah. No, not at all. I'm happy to sit there and cheer him on. Like I said, I think it's benefited me in still being able to to be playing for Leicester at, at 35, so mm. it was a decision that I made, always stood by and one that I'll not regret. Do you think that calling time on your international career as you did, has that helped you sustain yourself at club level? I think so, definitely, yeah. It's given me that time to, to have the rest when needed or when the, the club think I need a couple of extra days, then International breaks now are perfect for that. Get to fully refresh and make sure that I'm, I'm fully ready when the season starts up and running again. So David, Leicester and presumably Jamie Vardy will begin against Newcastle on Boxing Day and they're at Anfield three days later. Inevitably, Brendan Rodgers will be under the spotlight. There's been one defeat in seven since I began our conversation with one of my more left-field questions. Let's hear what he had to say. And then as you come through life and, and you come along that coaching line, you realise then you move in towards the management sector. Coaching is my, 
is my passion, is my love, so I'm, I'm always out there. But you also identify that managing people is important. So, so that side of it has developed as I've progressed mm. because of understanding the importance of, of managing people, that you can be a great coach, but if you then can't manage the person and talk to them and empathise with them, then that can be challenging for you. So it seems to me that the, the, the nature of the modern player is changing. You know, we read of some players spending a lot of their own money on their own personal development, mm. you know, talking to neuroscientists. Has there been a definable change in the nature of the players that you're coaching now than when you started? 100%. Yeah, I think the players now have a greater understanding, a greater knowledge of the game in terms of the science of the game, the psychology of the game. And it's totally different to what it was 20 odd years ago. I think there's there's 100% more information now for the players, which can also give them 100% more problems. But it's definitely, there's a clear difference now in players, one, because they, they understand more, I would say more about the sports science side of the game and the psychology side, mm -hmm. which clearly is is related to society because of social media and everything else. There's, there's much more of an awareness. So David, as I said, it was fashionable to doubt him for a while, but he does embody the value of experience and resilience, doesn't he? Yeah, and just going back to, again, back to the Arteta interview, he's done exactly the same. He's 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 not get, got caught up in all the, the, the conjecture around it. He's, he's, he's trying to play down the, you know, the questions that have obviously come his way when it comes to his future at the club and he's trying to just focus on the football and you can see that a good quality coach will always turn things around especially when you see in a position like him where there's no there's no talk around him losing dressing rooms players coming out saying they're unhappy his focus has always been on the next game and not getting drawn into those kind of discussions and it's difficult sometimes in football when you've got all that noise around you Frank Lampard mentions it as well. You know, you you can't let, allow your thoughts to be to be drawn elsewhere, and and it really is difficult to to keep that sort of narrow focus on on what really matters. And and I don't know whether you're taking credit for for the the good run that they've been on by asking <laughs> about those I, questions. I am, I am one hundred percent. But it's um, I think his interview was was telling, and in a way that I know that we've discussed this afterwards that. In a way that he 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 warmed during that interview, didn't he? He kind of like mm. he I think he'd been under a, a barrage of questions asking about his his future. When you know he obviously had that up a little bit at the start of the interview, and he and he warmed a little bit towards the end. But yeah, it, it's it's certainly like I said, it's it, good coaches, especially if they've still got the right environment and the right the right atmosphere in the dressing room, will always turn things around. Yeah, I thought I think the word he used was automated. You know, you, you actually, because you've been there before, you know what to do and you know what's coming. And obviously football, as well, as you and Adrian, as, as former players will know, is a, is a very harsh environment. You know, the naive will struggle in that environment. Watching France in that World Cup final reminded me of a chat with a former World Cup winner, Patrick Vieira. South London, it seems to me, has many comparisons with 
trap out of Paris, Banlieue, in which you grew up, high percentage of immigrants, produced a certain type of person, but also a certain type of footballer. Can you draw some comparisons between where you're working now and the footballers you work with and the way you grew up? I think, yeah, I think it is a good comparison. I think when you look at South London, it reminds me a lot of Dreux, where I grew up, Trap, but the suburb of Paris as well, because in those areas, you have a lot of immigrants, France colonized, a lot of um, Africans country. When you go to those places, you have a lot of people from Senegal, Ivory Coast, Mali, French-speaking African countries. And I think, yeah, that is a good comparison because of the number of immigrants that you have on those places. And uh, you have a lot of players who came from those parts of France. You know, when you look at footballers in general, to succeed with the difficulties to be at a higher level because, you know, you need to have a strong character, personality, and you build your character and your personality by growing up on those places because it's challenging, it's really difficult, and this is where you build yourself as a person. And I think this is one of the reasons why you have a lot of players coming from that side of places because of of the toughness that you have on those places who build your character. Adrian, again, I thought that was fascinating, drawing those comparisons between his own background in the deprived suburbs of Paris and the area which produces a lot of raw talent for his football club, South London. What did you make of that, the idea that players are created by certain environments? Oh, absolutely, that is true. And that part of London has, has been a talent factory, hasn't it, over the years? And, yeah, some of the kids have had it tough in, in their upbringings, but uh, but that brings with it an edge, doesn't it, sometimes, and, and, and a real burning desire to succeed. But what, what Patrick can bring there, even though he's from, he's from France, not South London, but he can empathise with the players, he can understand the types of characters that are coming through the ranks, and that's part. That's what management is, isn't it? I mean, David would know this. He's been on the staff at, at Sunderland recently. It's about understanding the people within your dressing room. It's not just about recognising what they can and can't do with the ball or without the ball. It's about pressing the right buttons and understanding what makes all of these individuals tick. And I think that Patrick, because of his background, because of what he he's been through to get to the very top... He's a great role model for those kids himself and he can also give real genuine pearls of wisdom to the young players that, that are coming through. I mean, he's got some talent there, that is for sure. Crystal Palace have got some some really good young players. I'm excited about Eze on Elise in the second half of the season. I think that they've obviously both had injury problems, but we got glimpses, didn't we, of, of magic, I thought, before the international break. And uh, yeah, I'd love to see them elevate Crystal Palace to a slightly higher level because I think the fans are looking for something more now, aren't they? They've had mid-table for a few years. Always seem to be around 12th, 13th, 14th, kind of where they are now. Can they break into that top half? They've not beaten anyone above them yet in the table, Crystal Palace. So that is the challenge 
that lies ahead for them in the in the second half of the season. I think it's a really interesting discussion around what Patrick mentions around the, the comparisons of where his players and come from and where he's he's come from himself. But there's a big discussion in there in in Scandinavia at the moment where you've got like say for Sweden for example, you know, the players who are coming through now and the talented players are those of second and third immigration that have come, uh, their parents and grandparents have come to Sweden beforehand. And so like the under 21s coach was appointed on the on that basis as well. So Paul Ashbagi, who's had a brief spell at Barnsley a, a little while ago, he was appointed under 21s coach because they felt that he had a, he would have a greater connection to to those players as well, you know, come from the same background. And during the World Cup, there was a big discussion in Denmark. Uh, Frank Arneson was on TV doing punditry. And he was criticised a lot for saying that Danish players don't have that hunger. They, they need that desire, that hunger, and, and come from a background where they need higher aspirations and, and a great desire to, to to better themselves and to obviously to to become a top class footballer. Whereas it, that and that sort of that that doesn't balance with some of the clubs that I know that you know sport with directly football one Super League club where their recruitment is for middle class. Danish footballers. That's where they want to, to recruit their, their their footballers from. In a, you know, you could say in a Christian Eriksen type of way, where you know he, he comes from a good background, well educated. So there's a bit of an imbalance there, and what sort of in what the people in football think about their this the, the need for desire in the game. Hmm. Well, this has been such a significant World Cup, and the future, according to Professor Simon Chadwick will be shaped by geopolitics and billions of dollars. It seems we should be booking our flights to Saudi Arabia. If we look forward, let's say, eight years, frankly, I'd be amazed if in the current climate the Saudi bid doesn't succeed. If it does, what is, what is the... Are we looking at that as a, a sort of super Qatari World Cup in terms of the amount of wealth that will be concentrated in that tournament. The figures who will be drawn into it, you know, Lionel Messi is already an ambassador. You know, the smart money, lots of smart money, is on Cristiano Ronaldo ending up his career in, in Saudi. Give me a sense of what you think that World Cup will be like. So you heard it here first. I think the World Cup will go to Saudi Arabia in 2030. That's what I genuinely believe. I've got no inside information, but based upon what I observe and what I hear and what I think is going on, that will happen. So if I explain why that's the case, the first thing is, is, is as your listeners will probably already know, Mohammed bin Salman, the de facto ruler of Saudi Arabia, sat next, sat next to Infantino at the starting, uh, the opening match of Qatar World Cup. Bit of a clue. Yeah, uh, he'd already done that at the 2018 World Cup when he sat next to Infantino at the opening of the 2018 World Cup in Russia. At that time in 2018, there were pretty good reports, solid reports that Saudi Arabia was trying to underwrite the relaunch and the rebranding of the, the FIFA Club World Cup. And, and ultimately that didn't come to pass. But what we do know is Infantino and Mohammed bin Salman have got a very, very good relationship with each other. But the other thing to keep in mind is Saudi Arabia is spending a huge amount of money, period, not just on Newcastle United, but generally, period, you know, trillions and trillions of dollars on all manner of different projects. And what Saudi Arabia is trying to do is to position itself as an Afro-Eurasian hub. 
So with links to Africa, Europe, and Asia. So Saudi Arabia wants to is seeing itself as some kind of you know it's almost like the center of the world, a bit like London or New York or your know, Paris or you know something of this nature. Now, keep in mind that Saudi Arabia is supposedly trying to do this with Egypt and Greece. So you've got the Afro part with Egypt, you've got the Europe part with Greece, and the Asia part with with Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia is offering to underwrite all the infrastructural preparation. So in other words, Egypt and Greece will get football stadiums and roads and whatever else they need. At the same time, Saudi Arabia will also provide that. But think about it from Infantino's point of view. 2030 is the 100th anniversary. And what Infantino will be able to say is, I didn't just take it to one country, I took it to three continents. And and <laughs> and and the, the, number, the number of people I hear you know, they say to me, Infantino wants to win a Nobel Peace Prize for uh, for FIFA. And you know, can you imagine you know, bringing Europe, Africa and Asia together? Great for those three countries, great for Infantino and FIFA, but also great too in terms of finances, because there'll be a lot of money washing around this. And, and this is to your point about Saudi Arabia. The way that I now see uh, Qatar, Qatar is Saudi Arabia light. So with Qatar, there are, there are 300,000 Qataris in the world. There are 35 million Saudi Arabians. This is a country that over decades and decades has accumulated vast wealth and is seeking to realise more wealth by, for example, privatising bits of its state-owned industries. And so we're really talking about a country with immense, immense financial resources with the ability and the intention to pay for a World Cup and very good friends in very high places. And so you heard it here first. Saudi Arabia, Egypt and Greece will win the 2030 bid. So, Migs, you've lived those realities over the last month or so. As a final point, what do you make of the direction in which the game is headed? Uh, I would be very concerned about it. I don't think it's regulated anywhere near well enough to protect issues like sporting integrity, like competitive balance, like the actual social meaning of football and its clubs, that these are guarded as the kind of the pretty precious things they should be. I mean, like an example is even the last week of the tournament with the Super League, where it was a good thing that the role of sporting bodies was recognised with that, uh, the opinion by the Advocate General. But yet, what, what's actually going to happen next? It doesn't mean there aren't issues at UEFA, given that one of the primary powers in European football now is is Qatar through ownership of Paris Saint-Germain with Nasser Al Khalifa as head of the ECA with the influence of being sports. Then you've got, of course, their rivals in the Gulf blockade, Saudi Arabia, who own Newcastle, Abu Dhabi, who own Manchester City. And it, and it is why, as well, it feels like this World Cup was the closing of an era in football, but also ushering in the next era where all of this gets even more pronounced, where something as as basic as, as kind of as old fashioned in terms of kind of just staging a tournament for sports washing processes isn't isn't really the instructive way anymore. And I, I mean, it would be symbolic if this World Cup was followed with one of Paris Saint-Germain or Manchester City winning the Champions League. And I think that, that this is going to be a source of even greater tension in sport going forward, especially as maybe the reality of all this is seen. And what, I mean, what, what if City streak to another title again this year? That's an alarm bell for the Premier League about competitiveness. 
it, it, it's going to it's going to be interesting to see how sport responds and the other side of that because it, it shouldn't be overlooked and it's kind of signaled with the sales or the prospective sales of Manchester United and Liverpool and how there's so much American interest there as well in that um I mean the, the number of American investors in European f- football lately I think it might have trebled I need, to, I need to check the figures but it's it's certainly it's gone up usually a lot of these clubs being absorbed into multi-club projects which bring questions of their own so I mean th- th- this is kind of this is the future of the game really it's been shaped by American capitalism which is all about return on investments and by Middle Eastern takeovers by a specific group of countries all, all on either side of the Gulf blockade uh, that are doing it for uh, for political purposes and it sometimes feels like the game it can't really, or the authorities in the game are struggle to protect themselves from that. And it's going to be instructive, interesting, and maybe not all that positive as to where it goes next. But, and, and the game, it, 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 I think it's a case where governments and institutions need to step in much more stridently to protect what sport is and protect the meaning of sport. It, it, it shouldn't be just surrender to all these sort of forces. Because, I mean, again, as something as this World Cup ultimately shows, it is about people and expression of their of their identity and the simple playing of a game it shouldn't be used for all these bigger and not necessarily altruistic purposes well yeah the game we fell in love with as kids is being twisted out of shape Uh, we've really got no option but to cling to simple pleasures like marveling at sublime pieces of skill or flashes of greatness now how long the players last remains to be seen. FIFA are coming up with new self-serving events that will add to the burdens. All that remains for me is to thank the clubs, players and managers who facilitated our podcast interviews this year. It should go without saying that I'm grateful for the insights of David, Adrian, Miguel and all our regular panellists. A shout out also to Connor, our brilliant producer. We're taking a brief break now. The next episode will go live on January the 12th. In the meantime, have a happy Christmas, and I hope 2023 brings all you wish for. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 